The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour on today's show. The fallout from the New Zealand whistleblower continues with tech companies now deleting without warning huge troves of data of Steve Kirsch and Kevin McKernan with censorship relied upon to suppress truth that will shock the world. But the cunning plan is working. British MP created a COVID inquiry and Robert Malone and David Martin were some of the attendees. As COP28 continues, the climate zealotry moves up a notch as I will attempt to diffuse the situation as the globalists present policies that will cause a famine in the pursuit of an arbitrary temperature target. And both the US and Europe warn of increased terrorism risks. But first today, Israeli forces are surrounding the city of Khan Yunus. Israel's top military commander has said, as the ground offensive spreads to the south of the Gaza Strip. 60 days after the war began, our forces are now encircling the Khan Yunus area in the southern Gaza Strip, said Lieutenant General Hersey Halevi, the Israeli Army's Chief of General Staff, on Tuesday. We have secured many Hamas strongholds in the northern Gaza Strip, and now we are operating against its strongholds in the south, Halevi said, according to the Times of Israel newspaper, as he announced the next phase of Israel's ground offensive against the Palestinian group. Anyone who thought that the IDF, the Israeli army, would now not resume the fighting after the truth, truce was mistaken, he added, of the pause in hostilities that collapsed Friday. That enabled the exchange of captives held in Gaza for Palestinians in Israeli jails. Hamas's Osama Hamdan said there would be no negotiations or a prisoner swap before the Israeli assault comes to an end. Speaking to reporters in Beirut, Hamdan also said that Israeli PM Netanyahu was responsible for the lives of Israeli captives in Gaza, adding that his true objective is to eliminate the Palestinian people. For weeks, Israel has declared Khan Yunus and its surroundings a safe zone. Millions of Palestinians have sought shelter there, but Israel has rapidly expanded its air and ground offensive, carpet bombing several areas across the Strip. In the north, the Jabalia refugee camp has been hit badly again. It's the largest and most densely populated area in Gaza and also in central Gaza. At least 45 Palestinians were killed after Israeli strikes hit residential buildings in Deir al-Bayar. Meanwhile, 16,000 Palestinians have now been killed since the war began in early October. As Israel is expanding its military operations in Khan Yunus, people across uh, the Khan Yunus city were forced again to evacuate to Rafah, seeking shelter away from the Israeli bombing. The city becomes overwhelmed with evacuees who are experiencing drastic conditions where they struggle to find shelter to survive. People left everything behind in Khan Yunus and were forced to live in tents that were set in public areas, lacking all basic supplies and considered unsuitable for humanitarian use amid deep shortage of food, water and medical supplies. Rafah is now the last shelter left for Palestinians as also the bombardment continue in these areas with unprecedented level and even domains. That was Tariq Abu Azam for Al Jazeera there. In a compelling development stemming from an FBI raid conducted last year, a portion of the gold bars found in the residence of embattled Senator Bob Menendez 
a Democrat from New Jersey, have been identified as those stolen in a high-profile 2013 robbery. In September, Senator Bob Menendez, the senior US Senator from New Jersey and former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and his wife, Nadine Menendez, were indicted on bribery and corruption charges. In October, Bob Menendez was charged with acting as a foreign agent in a superseding indictment. Bob Menendez and his wife are under investigation for their involvement in a bribery scheme from 2018 to 2022. The couple, who began dating in February of 2018 and married in October of 2020, are alleged to have accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes. The range of bribes included gold, cash, a luxury convertible, and significant payments towards Nadine Menendez's home mortgage. In June of 2022, a significant development occurred when the FBI executed a raid at the Menendez residence in Eaglewood Cliffs in New Jersey. The operation uncovered many elements of the bribery scheme. According to the Department of Justice, over $480,000 in cash, much of it concealed in envelopes and hidden in various parts of the house including clothing and closets, were discovered. A safe in the house contained additional cash and valuables. Over $70,000 in cash was found in Nadine Menendez's safe deposit box during a separate search. Some of the envelopes recovered bore the fingerprints and or DNA of Fred Dabes or his driver, further linking them to the scheme. Other envelopes with Menendez's name were found in jackets, handing in his closet. And meanwhile, Mr. Dabes, who is 66 years of age, was accused of giving the Menendez's a bribe in exchange for the Democratic senator's efforts to help him in the bank fraud case by installing a US attorney inclined to ease up on the prosecution. One of the most significant discoveries was over $100,000 worth of gold bars located within the home. According to reports, 13 of them were found. According to a report by NBC News, the serial numbers of the gold bars correspond with these reported stolen fraud from Fred Dabes himself during an armed robbery in Edgewater, New Jersey, about a decade ago. And for instance, one particular gold bar produced by the Swiss Bank Corporation and carrying the serial number 590005 was identified among the items seized from Menendez's home during this year's FBI raid. This same gold bar had been listed as stolen and later returned to Dabes in 2013. The evidence logs from the earlier incident bearing Dabes' signature and initials meticulously catalogued each gold bar, including their individual serial numbers, thereby linking them to the current investigation. And the death toll from a volcanic eruption in Indonesia has gone up to 22 after rescuers found nine more bodies. The search for the 10 missing hikers on Mount Merapi resumed Tuesday after being paused due to safety worries. Officials said that nine bodies had been recovered by afternoon, with one of them still missing. Twelve other injured hikers are undergoing treatment in hospital. Frequent volcanic eruptions in Marapay have hampered rescue efforts for days. Ahmed Rafandi, the head of Marapi's monitoring post, told AFP news agency that five eruptions had been recorded on Tuesday alone. Marapi is still very much active. We can't see the height of the column because it's covered by the cloud, he said. Rescuers told BBC News, BBC news rather in Indonesia that they have been taken advantage of windows of relative calm to look for the missing and efforts to look for the last missing hiker would resume Wednesday. The volcano spewed a three-kilometre ash cloud into the air on Sunday, shrouding surrounding villages in ash. There were 75 hikers in the area during the eruption, most of whom had been evacuated and received treatment for burns. Mount Merapi, which means mountain of fire, is among the mount 
the most active of Indonesia's 127 volcanoes and is also popular among hikers. Some trails reopened only last June due to ash eruptions from January to February. Merapi's deadliest eruption occurred in 1979 when 60 people died. On Monday, rescuers took turns carrying the dead and the injured down the mountain's arduous terrain and onto waiting ambulances with blaring sirens. Merapi is located on Sumatra, the westernmost and third largest of Indonesia's 18,000 islands. It stands 2,891 metres high. With more, here is Jessica Washington reporting for Al Jazeera. Stranded and afraid, a teenager pleads for her mother. Mum, please, she says, look at me now. She was one of the survivors found by rescuers on Mount Merapi after the volcano erupted on Sunday. Many of them are university students who are hiking up the 2,900-metre mountain. Authorities say their search efforts have been hampered by ongoing volcanic activity and heavy rain. Our main obstacle is there have been several eruptions and volcanic ash fell all the way to the foot of the mountain. This man is waiting for news of his son. My son was hiking in a group of 18 people, but they separated into two groups. Until now, they still haven't found them. Survivors have been taken to hospital. Many have severe burns and broken limbs. Zainuddin's daughter has burns on her face, arms, legs and hands. She was also wounded by falling rocks. Five of the hikers were near the crater when it erupted. They were scattered around. My daughter rolled down the slopes. Finally, the search team carried her down. Local authorities say ash and rocks fell on several districts near the volcano and they are urging those living close to the mountain to stay indoors to protect themselves from respiratory infections. The government of Guyana has breathed a sigh of relief after a referendum intended to rubber stamp Venezuela's claim to about two-thirds of the South American country's territory appear to have backfired. Nicolas Maduro had hoped to leverage his country's century-long claim to the disputed Escobibo region to mobilise public support, but voting stations across the country were largely quiet on Sunday as most voters shunned the issue. The turnout appeared so underwhelming that the Venezuelan government has been widely accused by analysts of falsifying the results. Venezuelan people have sent Maduro a very strong message, and I do hope that Maduro has taken note of what they've said, said Robert Persol, Guyana's foreign secretary on Monday. Venezuela has laid claim to the oil-rich Escuibo region ever since it gained independence from Spain back in 1811, alleging that its borders were drawn up unfairly in an act of intentional collusion. The dispute is being reviewed in the International Court of Justice, but Maduro has pleaded for weeks on TikTok and national TV for the Venezuelan public to back the government to take matters into its own hands. Among the five questions asked on Sunday were whether Venezuela should ignore the international arbitrators at The Hague, grant Venezuelan citizenship to Esquibido's English-speaking inhabitants, and convert the 160,000 square kilometres of territory into a new Venezuelan state. But voting stations across the country were largely empty, national and international media reported. I've seen no evidence or independent reports of queues anywhere in the country. It looks like a normal Sunday in Caracas, said Phil Gunson, analyst at International Crisis Group. It was a resounding failure for Maduro. Nonetheless, Maduro was quick to hail the vote in which 95% of those who voted yes to the government's five questions as a victory. It's been a total success for our country, for our democracy, Maduro told supporters in Caracas on Sunday evening, praising the very important level of participation. 
Venezuela's electoral authority said it had extended the voting window on Sunday evening due to massive participation, an image purported to have been shared and later deleted by Venezuela's electoral authority showed a table with about 2 million votes for each of the five questions, suggesting that they tallied the number of votes rather than the voters to spin the public relations disaster. And German Chancellor Olaf Scholz welcomed Brazilian President Lula da Silva to Berlin on Monday for the first intergovernmental consultations between the two countries in eight years. The trip comes as Latin America and Europe's largest economies seek to revive ties and with a pending free trade agreement. The EU and the economic bloc Mercosur, comprised of Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay and Uruguay, have already agreed to the broad terms of a potential trade pact in June 2019 after two decades of tough negotiations, but the two sides have yet to finalise their deal. Prior to the German-Brazilian government consultations, Lula alluded to the possibility of failure in the Mercosur talks. For Lula, the trip is part of ongoing efforts to restore Brazil's standing on the global stage after a period of diplomatic isolation under his right predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro. Schultz and Lula met in January, just weeks after the Brazilian president succeeded Bolsonaro. The encounter was overshadowed by differences over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now the two leaders also hold opposing policies on the war between Israel and the militant group Hamas. Lula last month said Israel's response to the October 7 terror attacks was as grave as the attacks themselves. Schultz, by contrast, has continuously backed Israel and its right to defend itself. With more, here is part of Dominic Kane's reporting for Al Jazeera. This was the first visit of a Brazilian head of state to Germany for more than 10 years. President Lula da Silva arrived at the Chancellery to a reception that was warm and businesslike. Bilateral deals were signed on protecting the environment and enhancing social justice. But da Silva was focused on hopes of a wider deal between the EU and the South American bloc Mercosur. As long as I'm able to believe this agreement is possible, I'm going to fight to do it. Because if we don't agree it after 23 years, I think we're all being unreasonable with the demands we're making. Germany sees Brazil as its most important South American trading partner, one that should have a greater role in world affairs. We need reformed international institutions. We are united in believing that the UN Security Council should be reformed and I think the changing world demands that the voices of the global south be heard and that those countries have greater representation. But they do disagree on the war in Ukraine and in Gaza. Lula da Silva says the UN should intervene to protect civilians. But Olaf Scholz insists on Israel's right to defend itself while trying to avoid civilian casualties. Is there a reason why it's called global warming or climate change? Which one is it? Because a new Lancet study has revealed that cold weather is responsible for approximately 90% of the 5.1 million annual excess deaths attributed to temperature. The cold causes nine times more deaths than heat. Would fewer people die if global temperatures were warmer? I'll have more on climate change later in the hour. But coming up after the break, as part of sanctions against Russia, an imposed oil price cap has failed. This is Compass on TNT Radio. 
TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. The light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk you're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Price limit on Russian oil imposed by the G7 and EU countries on Russian seaborne oil sales has essentially failed, Politico reported on Tuesday, citing new research. The mechanism was agreed last year and bans Western firms from providing insurance and other services to shipments of Russian crude unless the cargo is purchased at or below the $60 per barrel price cap. Similar restrictions were introduced in February for exports of Russian petroleum products. The measures were intended to substantially reduce Moscow's energy revenues. According to new analysis from the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air, shared with Politico over the last year, the scheme has cost the Kremlin €34 billion euro in export revenues, the equivalent of around two months' earnings this year. However, the amount is far less than those who designed the rules had hoped. The report said, adding that the impact had been felt most intensely in the first half of 2023 before starting to fade. Russian oil now consistently sells for more than $60 a barrel limit, Politico wrote. The impact of the price cap has been limited due to the inadequate monitoring and enforcement. Isaac Levy, who leads the CREA's work on Europe and Russia, was quoted as saying. He added that the Western nations have failed to crack down on sanctions loopholes. According to the report, the shortfall is partly due to traders simply ignoring the price ceiling, with Russian oil selling for roughly $70 a barrel. And CRREA researchers found that around 48% of Russian oil cargoes were carried on tankers owned or insured in G7 and EU countries. In theory, the price cap should apply to these vessels, the report said, adding that in practice, few operators have been targeted. And Democrats and Republicans in the US Senate have reportedly failed to reach a deal on a border security package, NBC reported Tuesday, citing congressional aides with knowledge of the talks. The collapse of negotiations now threatens to derail President Joe Biden's national security bill, which includes aid to Israel and Ukraine. 
The Republican Party has for weeks been threatening to block Biden's $106 billion national security supplemental request, originally introduced in October, unless it included a spending boost for the US-Mexico border and tighter immigration controls, particularly with regards to asylum and parole laws in immigration proceedings. GOP lawmakers have proposed detaining all migrants seeking asylum in the US upon entry instead of releasing them into the country while their claims are processed, as is currently the case. Republicans lawmakers have argued that the existing system is constantly being abused as it allows migrants to slip through the cracks. Democrats, however, have called these demands extremist, prompting negotiations to effectively break down, with both parties accusing each other of intractable positions. One Democratic aide told NBC that despite Democrats offering several proposals to streamline the processing of asylum claims, Republican senators have insisted on extreme policies that would end asylum as we know it and effectively shut down the border. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has also blasted Republican senators for holding up negotiations, saying on Monday that the GOP's border demands were being dictated by Donald Trump. The politicians stressed that the Democrat Party would not keep going in circles if Republicans aren't interested in meeting us halfway. Meanwhile, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has also countered Schumer's statement by suggesting that the Democrats were wasting time with bizarre public scoldings. He claimed that restoring a functional asylum and parole system and ensuring meaningful enforcement of US immigration laws was a bridge too far for Senate Democrats. The collapse of the negotiations comes as Biden's office has urged Congress to immediately resolve the military aid deadlock, emphasising that there's money for Ukraine in Biden's spending request that is desperately needed. It's an incredible state of affairs yet again as we see every day reporting that Ukraine, the war is almost up, that the people in Ukraine are now requesting, demanding, in fact, that the resolution or some form of peace be negotiated with Russia. And still the Americans are playing this very, very odd game and using it as they do by crossing one bill into another one. And following Hamas's latest attack on Israel, the US has faced an elevated threat of terrorism, FBI Director Christopher Wray said at a Senate hearing on Tuesday. Domestic counterintelligence and combating terrorism are part of the FBI's portfolio. Wray was briefing the Senate Judiciary Committee about the agency's activities. I've never seen a time where all of the threats or so many of the threats are all elevated. All at exactly the same time, Ray told Senator Lindsey Graham, the South Carolina Republican, who is the ranking member of the committee. Would you say there's multiple blinking red lights out there? Graham asked, referencing the phase used to describe the warning signs prior to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. I see blinking red lights everywhere, said Ray. Graham, who is a prominent supporter of Israel, wanted to know how much of a danger Hamas posed and whether it could be described as the biggest threat facing the US since 9-11. Ray agreed that after October 7, a veritable rogues gallery of foreign terrorist organisations has been calling for attacks in the US. As of right now, the FBI has no information to indicate that Hamas has the intent or capability to conduct operations inside the US, according to Ray's prepared testimony. The Bureau is especially concerned about the possibility of Hamas supporters engaging in violence on the group's behalf, he noted. Greatest terrorism threat on US soil from lone actors or small cells of individuals who typically radicalise to violence online and who primarily use easily accessible weapons to attack soft targets, Ray wrote. The FBI classifies these individuals as homegrown violent extremists. And the European Union has faces a huge risk of terrorist attacks over the Christmas holiday period. A, a society increasingly polarised by the Israel-Hamas war 
Blocks Home Affairs Commissioner has said. The warning issued by the EU Home Affairs Commissioner, Yiva Johansson, comes days after a German Filipino tourist was stabbed in Paris. The suspect, a 26-year-old Frenchman who reportedly comes from a non-religious Iranian family, is said to have made reference to the Islamic State, ISIS, group during the attack. Two other people also sustained injuries after being struck with a hammer. With the war between Israel and Hamas and the polarisation it causes in our society with the upcoming holiday season, there is a huge risk of terrorist attacks in the European Union, Johansson told reporters on Tuesday ahead of meeting with EU ministers in Brussels. We saw it recently in Paris. Unfortunately, we have seen it earlier as well, she added. Johansson, who also said that the EU has earmarked an additional 30 million euro in security spending, did not elaborate on it if her comments were based on specific intelligence warnings. Johansson's comments were underscored by Germany's Interior Minister, Nancy Faeser, who told reporters also on Tuesday in Brussels just how acute and how serious the threat posed by Islamic terrorism is currently in the EU. The war in Gaza and Hamas's terror are exacerbating the situation, she said, adding that she had discussed the issue of rising terror threats with her counterparts in Austria, Belgium, France, Spain and Sweden. Germany is also on the elevated alert for a possible terrorist attack. Last week, two passengers aged 16 and 15 were arrested for allegedly planning an attack of infidels and a targeted synagogue and a Christmas market, officials said, according to media reports. And just some breaking news now. I'm just going to collect it for you as soon as my computer will allow me to do it. But um, we've seen that there is a, a report of a nuclear site leaking, according to The Guardian. Safety issues at Sellafield have led to tensions with countries, including the US, Norway and Ireland. Sellafield, regarded as the most hazardous nuclear site in Europe, has developed a leak in a massive radioactive waste silo that has prompted concerns about the facility's safety measures, as well as the potential dangers to the public and the environment, according to The Guardian. The two square mile, six kilometre square plant located in Cumbria in England's northwest is responsible for the storage and decommissioning of nuclear waste from nuclear weapons programs and power generation. It previously was used to generate power from 1956 to 2003. And coming up after the headlines, Germany calls for boosters. That's right, vaccine boosters for COVID for Christmas. This is Compass on TNT Radio. Now, TNT Radio News. News Flash! Now, without further ado... Matt Boylan here with a look at your TNT headlines. The Speaker of the US House of Representatives has taken aim at the House Select Committee for what he says was a one-sided investigation into the January 6 attack on the Capitol. A visibly frustrated Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's taken aim at those who've condemned his country's bombing of civilians in Gaza and Russian President Vladimir Putin was expected to travel to the Middle East in a rare overseas trip on Wednesday before meeting with Iran's president in Moscow upon his return. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda, it never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Welcome back. German Health Minister Karl Lauterbach has said it is the optimal time for people to receive newly adopted coronavirus vaccinations. 
as he urged people to get their shots before the Christmas holidays. Yes, it is December of 2023. Speaking at a meeting on Monday dedicated to the long-term health effects of COVID-19, the minister argued that the danger currently posed by the virus was being underestimated. He also lamented that the take-up rate of newly adopted booster shots was thus far disappointing. Germany has seen a spike in coronavirus cases over the past week. According to the figures from the Robert Koch Institute, there have been 23,000 infections reported in the country in the past seven days, compared to around 13,000 in the previous six weeks. The head of the RKI, Lars Schad, has admitted, however, that the current level of cases does not carry the same significance as at the height of the pandemic, citing the population's raised immunity through prior infections and vaccinations. Meanwhile, Robert Malone, along with Dr. David Martin, Dr. Pierre Corey and others from the medical profession who were demonised throughout COVID, attended a hearing in the UK Parliament organised by MP Andrew Bridgen. Here is part of what Malone wrote in his latest Substack article. The expert testimony at the invitation of MP Andrew Bridgen in the UK Parliament yesterday was important. The room was overflowing with people. Many members of Parliament and Lords showed up to listen testimony given by myself as well as other scientists and physicians was science-based, truthful and accurate. Members of Congress in the USA and in parliaments all over the world are hearing one main topic from their constituents. What about the cover-up about the origins of the virus? What about the dangers of the vaccine? What about the cover-up of the effectiveness of early treatments? What about the censorship? What? When is the government going to come clean? At this testimony, we had 12 members of parliament and four members from the House of Lords in attendance. They listened. They were receptive. Some congratulated the Honourable Mr Bridgen afterwards. As many of you know, this is a huge chance from the empty chamber, a change, I should say, from the empty chamber that Bridgen had confronted in the past. In the end, he said, Malone, it didn't matter that the sergeant of arms downgraded the room request to only fit a third of those that wanted in. It didn't matter that the sergeant of arms refused the application of the various media outlets to film the testimony. It didn't matter that they turned off all the cameras that are meant to record every meeting in the building. It didn't even matter that they had AV issues, so a muted video feed was all that was available. It didn't matter that the TV in the room for presentations was muted with no remote controls. It didn't matter that they placed many uniform guards outside the hearing room, something people in the room said that they had never witnessed before. Now, here is part of Dr. David Martin's testimony. Now, the footage was recorded on mobile phones and the quality is not very good, but it is necessary to play regardless. My job here is not to convince you of a thing. My job here is to merely present the context that says that there is no question that the entirety of what we've been through over the last four years has been merely an orchestration to assault the liberties of people here in this country and around the world. Pretending that this is some sort of public health emergency, pretending this is a justification for the inconceivable threat to liberties and the violation of human rights is actually nothing more than to give lip service to tyrants. And the fact of the matter is the evidence starts here in the UK in 1966. Your own welcome trust was the one who decided to fund the coronavirus as the preferred form of human manipulation in 1966. 1966 is where Martin says this comes from. The stage is now set. We will now fast forward to 2015, where the World Health Organization declares coronavirus is eradicated, but it wants to develop vaccines regardless. And by 2015, we had the public statement, and I need to read this into the record. To sustain the funding base beyond the crisis, 
we need to increase the public understanding of the need for medical countermeasures, such as a pan-influenza or pan-coronavirus vaccine. Let me pause for a moment. When this statement was made, the World Health Organization had officially declared coronavirus a eradicated disease. In what world do we need a vaccine for a disease that the World Health Organization in its own infinite wisdom had declared eradicated? Question, just sit on that for a moment. <laughs> but let's go on. A key driver is the media and the economics will follow the hype. We need to use that hype to our advantage to get to the real issues. Investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process. Does that sound like a public health emergency to you? Or does that sound like a statement of treason? That is an act of domestic and international terrorism, and that's the admission of that act. And just in a few short days, we will have the author of that statement, one Peter Daschet, testifying in Congress that this thing probably still came out of a, a, a random event that took place in Wuhan, China, where a bat and a pangolin got together, and voila, in December, we were there. That's a quote from 2015 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That's the conspiracy level language I'm using. And by the way, I'm using the term conspiracy in the legal definition of the term. This is the admission of conspiracy to commit acts of terror. And one year later, the last image you see on this screen, one year later, was the announcement, and I'm quoting, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology Virus 1 was, and I quote, poised for human emergence. End quote. That was 2016. That's the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. That's the conspiracy that I'm apparently representing. Just imagine 16 of those elected officials in that room with Dr. David Martin, assuming that they've never heard any of this before, and then thinking that these people must know what they're talking about to have gotten inside the parliament, given that MP Andrew Bridgen insisted that they come along. What were those people thinking last night? Poised for emergence, for human emergence. Does that sound like an oracle predicting the future or a plan about to be executed with the media in play, the profit mechanisms installed, the indemnity clauses established, and a medical emergency, emergency, the sleight of hand to operate under a new and different set of relaxed rules. Here, Dr. David Martin provides the proof, the proof that Dr. Mike Yeadon calls the greatest crime ever perpetrated and currently in progress. Now, the evidence for all of you who doubt the merits of the argument that I make is right in front of you. In 2002, the upper left, you see the first patent in 2002 filed on the synthetic chimeric coronavirus, which, as I've said in many instances, was actually patented to be infectious and replication defective. What that means is it was actually weaponized. That's not an allegation, that's a statement of fact, because in 2005, you see at the bottom of the curriculum vitae of one Ralph Baird, line 57, I believe that is, of his bio, says, synthetic coronaviruses, biohacking, Biological Warfare Enabling Technologies. Does anyone actually want to just muse for a moment what he could have potentially meant when he said Biological Warfare Enabling Technology? Does that sound like a public health response? Does that sound like a P3 program where we're trying to figure out how to treat this thing? 
Is that what it sounds like? Or is there an outside chance that the reason why he unleashed $10 million that year and every other year in non-competitive grants from all of the above reference agencies, is there any chance that the reason why is because they were actually building, are you ready for this? Biological weapons. Now, I happen to have the credential in the United States since 2002 of being a biological weapons inspector. I know of what I speak. And the fact of the matter is, I briefed this matter first in 2002. I consistently briefed this ever since. And when in 2019, September 18, 2019, we actually had the World Health Organization's Global Preparedness Monitoring Board announce that there was going to be, in the time between September 19, 2019, and September of 2020, there was going to be, are you ready for this, an accidental or intentional release of a respiratory pathogen. There's an operative word in that statement that's quite alarming, isn't there? Release. That's not a leak. That's not an accidental escape. They used the word release. They didn't use, there might be an accident. Now, we know that the FBI has said that COVID was man-made, but everyone in the world up until David Martin said it then in officialdom has said that it was accidentally let out. Martin, for the first time in front of 16 or 17 elected MPs and Lords, has gone the other way and said the opposite. This was let out on purpose. It's a huge leap now. And finally, we can see that there is intention all the way to getting this COVID virus out into the general population. And if we consider the merits of Barry Young's whistleblower data in New Zealand now being deleted out of the cloud accounts of Kevin McKerner and Steve Kirsch around the world, the cover-up of the greatest crime against humanity is in progress. Just how far it will get before the tables turn on the perpetrators is the $64 trillion question. And coming up after the break, the climate zealots at COP28 are pushing their mantra at levels never seen before with their language suggesting they know they are beat. This is Compass on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Facts matter. And the fact is that until the COVID-19 genetic therapy injections hit the scene, we didn't have thousands of young athletes dying in competition, in training, or home asleep in their beds. We didn't blame things like a previously undiagnosed genetic cardiac anomaly, or taking too cold a shower, or walking too briskly to class. And the fact is that it wasn't Israelis that kidnapped Palestinian Olympic athletes in Munich and murdered them. It wasn't Israelis that blew up nightclubs in Berlin and Indonesia. It wasn't Israelis that drove a truck through a Christmas parade in Wisconsin or shot up a Christmas market in Germany. It wasn't Israelis that stabbed to death festival goers in Stockholm. It wasn't Israelis that did these things. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. While serving in Vietnam, a grenade took my ability to see. Today, I'm a sculptor creating new visions. Now, my fingers are my eyes. As a veteran, I know the challenges of life can be great. In my art, turning a lump of clay into something beautiful, that means a lot to me. Life is like that. We each must use what we can to make things better. DAV helps veterans like Michael get the benefits they've earned. 
They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. Now, I show others how they can create something with their own hands. With support from DAV, more veterans can shape their lives into a thing of beauty. My victory is bringing beauty into the world. Michael Naranjo, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. From world news to global policies and beyond, beyond. this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. I have a question for you. Is it fitting that this whole wave of extreme cold in Europe should hit right at the chief climate fearmongers who are all gathering at the COP28 in Dubai, peddling their global warming warnings? Washington Post reported that large parts of Europe are starting the 2023-24 winter season with an abundance of snow and cold, a stark contrast from last year, which was abnormally warm and snowless. In Munich, Germany's third largest city, a storm over the weekend dropped nearly a foot and a half of snow, setting a December record. It was also the city's largest snowstorm since early March 2006 and among the biggest of any on record. Germany was far from the only country that has endured a sudden wintry onset. Much of the rest of Europe is also blanketed in snow. Weather forecasts predict more snow is on the way, particularly from the Alps northward through Germany and into Eastern Europe. The snow is also affecting roads and utilities. Cumbria in northwestern England was hit with up to a foot of snow. Vehicles that were stranded and about 13,000 customers lost power, according to the BBC. Satellite imagery and ground observations reveal a remarkable snowfall extent over the continent. Typical snowy spots such as the Alps are buried in above average amounts, with some locations approaching record highs for the first time of the year, according to Meteo Swiss, Switzerland's forecasting agency. Europe is likely experiencing its snowiest start to a meteorological winter since 2010, wrote French meteorologist Nahel Bergelez on X. Temperatures in Central Europe have fallen near or even below zero. That's minus 18 Celsius, levels that are more typical of the Scandinavian countries in Europe's north. The extent of snowfall over the northern hemisphere has run near to above average for the last eight weeks, and it will have the hottest and coldest year coinciding. coinciding. Extreme cold and snow have also overtaken parts of Russia, including in Siberia in recent days. One of the most significant daily snowfalls on record hit Moscow on Monday, cancelling flights and stranding motorists. Temperatures in Siberia have plummeted as low as minus 60 to minus 70 degrees. That's minus 50 to minus 57 Celsius in recent days, according to weather historian Thierry Goose, a level of cold that is exceptional for this early in winter. Meanwhile, Bloomberg reported that European countries face a blisteringly cold start to the week as temperatures drop below minus 10 degrees in parts of Scandinavia and snow ground plains elsewhere in the region. Norway, Sweden, Finland are being hit by deep sub-zero temperatures that are expected to remain for at least another week, according to forecaster Maxar Technologies. Meanwhile, rain, sleet and snow are expected across much of Britain and France. Oslo is forecast to reach as low as minus 13.5 degrees on Monday, more than 12 degrees below average for the time of year. Wind power output, a key source of electricity in the region, has almost come to a halt, contributing a mere 4.9% of the region's output. And in January of this year, Bill Gates was in Australia having an unrecorded recorded interview with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and then was interviewed at the Lowy Institute. In this clip, he explains climate change goals and it's far less urgent than what we are being sold today. Take a look. All right, let me ask you about climate change. You wrote 
earlier this month that the world isn't on track to avoid the limitation of global warming by the 1.5 degree mark. What, what is a realistic target then and what is this level of warming likely to mean in relation to effects on the world and humanity? So climate change is not yet uh, the negative effects of it at you know, some level like malaria that kills 400,000 children a year. The reason that climate change is worth investing in <coughs> massively is because it will get worse and worse over time. To solve it, there's no chance you'll hit 1.5 degrees. It's very unlikely you'll hit two degrees. The key is to minimize the warming as much as possible. And at this point, you know, staying below 2.5 would be pretty fantastic. And I do think that's possible. So it's minus 13 and a half in Oslo. It's minus 50 in Siberia. Do these people care if the temperature warms by a degree or do they welcome it? Gates this year says climate is not urgent and 1.5 degrees in temperature is not achievable. Is there anyone in Europe would even notice that difference in temperature? I know Gates is hardly someone to believe in. He's not a scientist, doctor or elected, but he is a profit maker. But what do you think Hillary Clinton is relying on in these comments now? We're seeing uh, and beginning to pay attention and to count and record uh, the deaths that are related to climate. And by far the biggest killer is extreme heat. I mean, even in Europe last summer, which uh, has the ability to count and figure out what happened, they recorded 61,000 deaths because of the heat in Europe. We don't have that kind of number yet from Africa, Asia, Latin America, but we know and estimate that we probably uh, could uh, measure about 500,000 deaths. And the majority of those are women and girls, and particularly pregnant women. Uh so probably could estimate is Hillary's what she's relying upon. And all of a sudden, oil and fossil fuels are sexist. Meanwhile, the increasingly desperate and angry John Kerry looks beaten as he predicts that his portfolio is the most important and we the people just don't get it. Whilst being only the fifth most important, most pressing issue, Kerry wants us to know that climate change is existential, which means it exists. In a recent NBC yeah. poll from August, voters ranked climate change as the fifth most important issue. Right. It was behind democracy, cost of living, jobs in the economy, immigration. I mean, can you make the case for it being number one, or how do you see that? It is an existential issue. Mm -hmm. It is an issue where people today are dying. 15 million a year die because of the lack of air quality. 10 million people are dying every year around the world because of extreme heat. It's getting hotter. There are going to be more intensive weather events, and it will cost us an awful lot more money. So as that happens, as people see their farms, you know, the crops ripped away or their homes destroyed, you watch the pressure grow. And I believe we're in a transformational moment. I think this will be one of, if not the, but it'll be one of the top three issues in the 24 presidential election. No question in my mind. Claims by Kerry are staggering. 10 million people, he says, dying from heat. Meanwhile, Bill Gates says that climate change is not an issue because it's not 400,000 malaria deaths. So who do you believe in all of this? If Gates is the one out the front calling the jets and these politicians are really going off on a tangent. So how come climate change is so widely pushed yet so unaccepted in certain circles 
that protected like vaccine science from public scrutiny. Does anyone really believe John Kerry or Hillary Clinton anymore? Do you think that Hillary and Kerry represent a winning or losing team? Here is Mariana Mazzucato speaking at a World Economic Forum event, explaining how she thinks compliance is working and what needs to be done in relation to COVID, climate change and a new ace up a sleeve, water. That's also, of course, true with COVID, right? We are all only as healthy as our neighbour is on our street and our city and our region and our nation and globally. Did we solve that? Like, did we actually manage to vaccinate everyone in the world? No. So highlighting water as a global commons and what it means to work together and see it both out of that kind of global commons perspective, but also the self-interest perspective, because it is it does have that parallel. It's not only important, but it's also important because we haven't managed <laughs> to solve those problems, with, which had similar attributes. And water is something that people understand. You know, climate change is a bit abstract. Some people understand it really well. Some understand it a bit. Some just don't understand it. Water. Every kid knows how important it is to have water. When you're playing football and you're thirsty, you need water. So there's also something about really getting citizen engagement around this and really, in some ways, experimenting with this notion of the common good. Can we actually deliver this time in ways that we have failed miserably other times? And hopefully we won't keep failing on the other things, but anyway. I don't quite understand this globalist idea. Are we constituents or they're hostages? Well, even if the general public rejects the globalists entirely, that will not stop the globalist using their truth to silence yours. Of course, there is no such thing as competing truths. There is only the truth. Here is Vera Jarova, another World Economic Forum zealot, muscling in on the narrative. What do they put in the water in Davos? After Mr. Musk took over the Twitter with his freedom of speech absolutism, um, we are the protectors of freedom of speech as well. But at the same time, we cannot accept, the, for instance, the, the illegal content online and so on. So uh, our message was clear. We have the rules which, has to, which have to be complied with and otherwise there will be sanctions. Meanwhile, for a change of pace, here is Thomas Sal, an American economist, social philosopher and political commentator, interviewed about public intellectuals explaining how it works in relation to the narrative of the day climate change. But the demand for public intellectuals is largely manufactured by the public intellectuals themselves. Yes. Explain that. How do they manufacture demand for their own services? Well, they, they, one, one thing is by uh, making, making alarming predictions, uh, offering uh, solutions to our problems. What do you make of global warming? Uh, I think it's a classic example of the uh, need for crusades. Now, people, many people are shocked by these emails. I'm not at all shocked by them. I read, I read the original UN study years ago, and I was just curious as to how they were going to deal with the question that the uh, temperatures went up first, and then there was the increase in carbon, carbon dioxide. Right. Because you can't say that A causes B uh, uh, if B happened first. And so I read this, and I could see they were, they were tiptoeing through the tulips and the way they phrased things and so forth. They, they couldn't confront that. And, and now we're finding out uh, that they, they knew darn well they couldn't deal with all the evidence. So it fits the pattern of a group of intellectuals, science, climate scientists, mm -hmm. who are, have a very narrow competency, suddenly proclaiming that there's a crisis, mm -hmm. scaring the rest of us, thereby creating a demand for their services, yes. not as 
science, climate scientist alone, mm -hmm. but as a kind of high priestly caste that can tell us all how to live and save the entire yes. planet, and in the meantime, generate billions of dollars worth of government programs to fund their research initiatives. And so, so are you, it's a racket. Yes. All right. But, but again, you have to t take account of the ability of human beings to rationalize. Uh, I'm sure there are scientists out there uh, who, who, who believe some or much of what they're saying, and there are other scientists who believe the opposite. But, they, but the ones who are pushing global warming are doing their damnedest to make sure that those who believe the opposite don't get heard in the public. Really extraordinary what we're seeing now, that there is an actual real debate amongst real powerful intellectuals one way or another in society, just as we're seeing this climate extremism behaviour from those politicians at the very top of the tree. Who wonders what kind of pressure someone like John Kerry is really under and from where is it coming? Kerry has blamed agriculture for one third of the world's carbon emissions and calls for a massive reduction in farming to lower set emissions towards net zero. But by cutting farming down to nothing, a lack of calories and food causes a famine. Here is Greenpeace creator Patrick Moore confirming this absurdity. And they're getting away with doing something now. They're going into agriculture and threatening to cut off the supply of food because food is causing global warming. And Oh, isn't that nice? Only the billionaires will be able to afford to buy food and all the other people will die and because uh, there's not enough food. That's what we're heading for if we continue to listen to these people. And they are about to perpetrate one of the most evil acts in the history of human civilization, which is to cause poverty and starvation to hundreds of people if they go with this net zero. In order to get net zero, we'd have, first off, we'd have to kill all the animals, including ourselves, because we are an emission of CO2. We are talking about the most important things for the survival of ourselves every day, food and energy. There are no two, there no, nothing else is as important as those two things. Water, right, is part of food. Uh, they haven't decided to cut the water off just yet. But if they go ahead with what they are thinking and planning, they will cause a ruination the likes of which the earth has never seen. Because there are over 8 billion of us, and 4 billion of us depend on nitrogen fertilizer, which they now say is bad because it's a greenhouse gas or whatever. It, it, it isn't actually a greenhouse gas, but they've got some story about how nitrogen uh, in the form of nitrous oxide is going to cause the earth to warm up to unacceptable degrees. It's all completely phony. And so is the campaign against CO2, completely phony. There's nothing to it. It's not a real thing. And yet they have made it into a real thing in the West in particular. Russia, India, and China are busy building coal plants and nuclear plants. It is abundantly clear that globalism exists and is unwanted by the masses. Instead, these quasi-government institutions push on because a few in power want to stop them, but many are trying to build said political will, elections being part of the process. And it's the elections that we're reporting almost daily now that every single election I talk to you about, somehow someone's questioning said outcomes. It's quite nauseating and extraordinary. Globalism brought us man-made COVID, 
It brings us human-caused climate change, despite the science showing us humans are responsible for less than 3% of global emissions, which, according to Sal, is not even the cause. Climate change is the setup for a catastrophe entirely by its own making. The globalists are well-known and fully exposed, and as more people walk away from the mainstream media and find their news elsewhere, the trajectory is being adjusted. The likes of Kerry and Clinton ought to look frightened because their days of calling the shots are numbered. It is a long, long haul, but every day is one step closer to a new reality, the real truth finally coming to the fore. Well, that concludes today's edition of Compass. Up next is Chris Smith. This is Jason Olborn for Compass on TNT Radio.